I'm going to read you a series of statements that Paul makes in this passage, something like this. And if you feel strongly and agree, I expect an amen, okay? So I'm conditioning you. I expect an amen. There is one God who is over all people. You believe that? Every one of you and everyone anywhere else. Number two. All people have a sin problem that separates them from the one God. That's you, or it was you, and that's everybody else. Great. There is one mediator between the one God and all people. There's only one. There's only one. Number four. He gave his one life to pay the ransom cost for all sin. Okay, we're weakening a little bit. Make sure you, we just gathered around the table. That's exactly what we commemorated, right? All right. This is the one plan of the one God that can save all people. You believe that? You know when you say that, you're saying there's no other routes back here. There's no other plans they can consult. There's no other resource, right? That's what you're saying. And here's the last one that flows out of that, and I want you to see it clearly. God really, 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 really wants every person to take advantage. You believe that? I mean, it's his whole heart. I want everybody, I don't want just a, he's delighted with you, right? He's delighted with the church and he's going to accept our worship this morning. But even as he is accepting your worship, his eye is on the unbeliever. His eye is on the unbeliever longing for them to be here. He would leave the 99, y'all, to get the one who's not here. That's the God we serve. There was a teacher in a, a Christian college, and I, I got to tell you, as a Christian college, you're required to take Bible courses, right, each semester. And he was teaching Bible survey to a freshman class of 35 students. Most of these were not really believers, and all of them were required to take it, and some of them didn't like the idea of having to take it. And so as he was getting to the Jesus part, the fulfillment of all those scriptures, and how Jesus is the one mediator between the one God and all people, and he's the one sacrifice. He's getting to all that. They looked at him with glossy eyes. They were unmoved. They were bored. They were unimpressed. Maybe they'd heard about it all their lives and it was ho-hum, or maybe they didn't know about it and didn't care. But he had one student in class who showed some enthusiasm. His name was Steve. He had a 4.0. He turned in every assignment. He was there for every class. And so he was a bright and cheerful student, also a member of the football team. And after, after he, he lectured so much and talked so much and tried to get the students to see how significant these truths you see on the screen behind you are, uh, behind me are, he just... He had to try something, so he got Steve beside him after class one day, and he said, Steve, how many, how many push-ups can you do? And he says, I can do 200 a day for, pre- for football practice. So the professor said, okay, that's going to that's gonna work for class tomorrow. I've got this thing I've got to try, and I want you to do a bunch of push-ups to help me illustrate something. And he shared the plan with him, and he agreed to it. The next class, the next morning, the students gathered. They came in the classroom, and they smelled a wonderful smell. It's the smell of fresh delicious donuts, two boxes of them on 
boxes of them on the teacher's desk, and they realized this won't be lecture day, this is going to be donut day. The professor picked up the donuts, and he had napkins for each one. And so he took one donut out of that box, comes up to the first student, says, Cindy, would you like a donut? And she says, well, of course I want a donut. And he put it on her desk and looked at Steve and said, Steve, would you please do 10 push-ups so Cindy can have this donut? And so he jumped up immediately and he got down on the floor and he did his 10 push-ups and he returned to his seat. And everybody kind of thought that was fun and delightful and kind of applauded. This is great. This will be a great class. He went to the next student, Joe, would you like a donut? He said, yeah, I'd love to have a donut. And said, Steve, can you do 10 more push-ups so that, so that Joe can have a donut? And he dropped the floor, he did 10. He continued this way all the way down that first row. Each student got a donut and enjoyed it, and Steve, didn't, Steve did 10 push-ups for each one. By the second row, people were watching Steve, and he was sweating. The students were no longer finding it as fun. The professor came to Mike, and Mike is on the basketball team, and Mike spoke before the teacher even asked him, I can do, I can do my own push-ups, and the professor shook his head. That's not, that's not the way it works in my class today. Mike, Steve has to do the push-ups, and so Mike says, well, then, then I don't want the donut, and the professor shrugged and said, Steve, uh, uh, Steve do, do 10 push-ups so Mike can have a donut, and Steve dropped to the floor, but as he was going to the floor, Mike objected and said, I, I told you I don't want a donut, and, and the teacher looked up at the whole class and said, listen, this is my class, and these are my donuts, and, and I want you to have one. I really want you to have one. That's why I provide them, but this is my plan for allowing you to have one, and so he laid a donut on Mike's desk. Mike said, I'm not going to eat it. The teacher says, if you don't want your donut, just leave it on the desk. I won't force you to eat it, but I sure wish you would. And he looked back at Steve and said, Steve, do the 10 push-ups. Steve was slowing down a couple students from there. He was sweating. He was grunting. It was obvious that it was getting to him, burning those muscles. He now didn't even get up in between the sets that he was doing. He stayed on the floor to breathe a little, right, between the, each set. The students were getting a little bit antsy and angry, and he came to Jenny on the third row. Jenny, do you, do you want a donut? She said, no, I don't, and I don't want Steve to have to do push-ups, not for me. And the professor laid a donut on her desk and said, Steve, do 10 push-ups so Jenny can have the donut she doesn't want. And he did. By now, all the students were rejecting it declining the offer and their desks were covered with uneaten donuts and Steve was laboring in this process he was complying but it was obviously rough his arms shook as he lifted himself off the ground hardly able to raise himself and each one of the members of the class had to have the 10 push-ups for the donuts they either ate or didn't it didn't matter he still had to do them he came to a person who wasn't even a believer at all, and this man was getting, this student, Michael, was getting really angry and agitated. The professor put that donut on his desk, and the student was very curt. This is crazy. This is stupid. His name was Robert, not Mike. As the professor put a donut on his desk, he said, some people say that, Robert. Indeed, some people do call it stupid. Steve, do 10 push-ups so Robert can have a donut that he doesn't want. And soon the only sound you heard in the classroom was the heavy breathing of Steve as he was lifting himself off the ground and then putting himself back to the earth. A few quiet sobs from the girls especially, and Steve agonized with every push-up in each set. 
He took a few seconds in between just to take a breather, and by now he had done 25 sets of 10 push-ups. And finally, as he went down the final row, he got to the last student, Susan. Susan, would you like a donut? And with tears coming down her face, she looked at Stephen on the floor and said, why can't I help him? The professor by this time was a little moved himself, and he says, no, Steve has to do it alone. I looked at my grade book, and he's the only student with a perfect grade. He's the only one who hasn't skipped class. He's the only one who's turned in every assignment. Steve is on the football team, and he's told me that every time somebody messes up, they have to do push-ups to pay for it. So Steve and I made a deal. Since all of you have messed up in my class, Steve agreed to do the 10 push-ups so that you can all enjoy the donuts. And he turned to Steve and said, Steve, do 10 more push-ups for Susan to have a donut. He finally eked out the final one and just said, I'm finished, it's finished, and he dropped to the floor. And the professor then looked at the class and says, this is what we've been talking about. Our Savior Jesus gave his all on the cross to pay for our sins, to bring us back to the one God who's over us. And when he'd done everything required of him, he yielded up his very life and he said, it's finished. And like many of you in this room have done, many people just leave that gift on the desk untouched. And he dismissed the class. There's one God who's over all people. All people have a sin problem that separates them from the one God. There is one mediator between one God and all people. He gave his one life to pay the ransom cost for all sin. This is the one plan of the one God that can save all people. And he really, really, really wants everyone to take advantage. You know this. You believe this. It's why you're here to worship. It's why you're here on top of this hill. It's why you've gathered with other believers to sing this praise that we've sung this morning. You know a good deal when you hear it. Your parents taught you to not pass up a bargain like this one. But Paul doesn't share this doctrine to woo people to God. He does in other places. But in this passage, which is very strange, he's not trying to get people to see the truth. He's talking to people who've already taken advantage. And he ends this in verse 7 by saying, and this is what I've been assigned to do. My life task is to make sure everybody gets to know this advantage and this offer that God is making. And do you know what he says at the beginning when he's applying it to his own readers? You need to adopt God's mindset You need to adopt God's way with people because for those who've received the benefits of this amazing plan of God, our task is to make sure everybody gets a chance to hear it. Everybody gets a chance to know it. So this doctrine is back back behind this doctrine is two things Paul's trying to do. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. What in the world does praying for all people have to do with that doctrine we just looked at? I've grappled with this all week. What does that praying for people have anything to do with the one God who's over all people and he sent one mediator? What's all that doctrine got to do with me praying? What is the connection? Here's the connection. If we have been beneficiaries of this gracious gift of God we will adopt God's way of thinking and God's way of thinking is this I want everyone to know and be saved 
We serve a God who looks at this world, and while we often look at the world and you see the evening news and you think, God's got to come along and flatten these. When's God going to come along and make things right? We don't serve a God who's primarily about judgment and anger when he looks at the world. We serve a God who looks at the world and his primary, predominant, instant feeling is love. I want them in my life. I want them to be one with me. I am longing for these people. That's the God we serve. We often think he's angry, he's holding up a fist. Here's a world that is so anti-God, a world that's so determined to be godless, and yet when God looks at this world, he has nothing but affection and a desire to draw them close, to, to get rid of the dis- distance between uh, him and the world and draw him to himself. That's the God we serve. He wants to put on a cape and be the deliverer. He's God our Savior before he's God our judge. That's an amazing image Paul has. It drives him to do ministry, and he says it needs to drive you. How can we be a church that instead of griping and complaining about a world that's gone wrong, we have a countenance, an attitude, a disposition that looks at the world and says, how I long for you to know what we know, to have what we have. And it then causes God to go on and act out of that. And when he acted out of that, when God looked at the world that way, what he decided to do is there's a, it's a messy world. It's a terrible world. It's an awful, sinful world. Let me obliterate it. No, that's not what he said. What he said instead, let me send my son to it. Let me send my son into it. Not only send him into it, but he's going to be, he, he's going to suffer the consequences of this godless world, and they're going to kill him. But through that killing, they're going to give themselves an opportunity to be saved. The brilliance of a loving God who longs to save is overwhelming to us, isn't it? Look at what he was willing to do. And God says, I want you now that you've received this, I want you to have that attitude and desire for the world. But what practically does that mean? That's where chapter 2, verse 1, it is bizarre. I would never start with this, but Paul does. First of all, what I want you to do first of all is I urge you to help, to, that you uh, make supplication, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. If you know this doctrine we talked about, If you've received the blessing of this doctrine, the first thing I want you to do, first thing, first order of importance, I want you to learn to pray better. I want you to pray for everybody. I don't want you just to pray for the sick of your church, not sick of your church, like I'm sick of your church, the sick in your church. I'm not, I don't want you just to pray for your people. I don't want you just to pray for white people. I don't want you just to pray for you people in Jonesboro or in Arkansas. I want you to pray for all people. Pray all kinds of prayers. Be thankful. When they have needs, pray for them. This is an evangelistic tool. Prayer is an evangelistic, powerful tool that even the world recognizes. And Paul says, your prayers have become narrow. Your prayers have become like reinforcements of prejudice. Who are you praying for and who are you not praying for? It says a lot about you. Prayer is shorthand for your entire faith. I'm going to put a screen up here that's going to have some scripture taken out. It tells you not to take scripture out, but we're going to do that. Number one, he entered 
the temple. You remember the scene with Jesus. He goes into the temple, and there are money changers in there, people with animals they were selling and exchanging money and all this stuff. All these people are in the Gentile part. There's parts of the temple area where even Gentiles can come in. Only the Jews can go beyond that, but the Jews can come so, uh, the Gentiles can come so close. There's a place where outsiders can draw close to God, and that's this place. But the Jew, Jews decided, oh, they don't need it. Let's turn it into like a flea market of animals. And now all of a sudden, the Gentiles had no place to be able to learn about God, right? Jesus goes in there, and he drives them all out, and he wants this place to be available for Gentiles. He enters the temple. He begins to drive out those cells and buying in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons next screen and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them and and, and saying to them is it not written my house will be called a house of prayer prayer is this communion with God my house will be known as a place where people can get to know God it's not about all this other stuff. It's about, do, do, I want people when they look up, even at our church building, I mean, we're not, the church building is not the temple, we are, but do people, would, would people associate us as a place where they can go and commune with God here? Is prayer a big part of us? I'd like it to be, because that's like a shorthand for all of your faith. He says, but my house will be called a house of prayer for whom? Does anybody remember? All nations. We're not just about us. We're not just about the saved. We pray for all kinds of people. And we are a people that we want to pray for the salvation of the world. Hey, listen, I want to pray for all our American troops, okay? I'm all for it. But I want to, I want to pray for every human being to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the flow, uh, overflow. That's what God says. I want this to be so part of your heart that what comes out of your mouth when you pray is what's in your heart, a desire for all people to be saved. And so... He's saying your prayers there in Ephesus, Timothy, have become very narrow. And if you believe in this one God over all people who has sent one mediator to be the one plan to get everybody back with God, you need to be a people of prayer. It needs to be reflected in the prayers that you say. And then he goes on to say some specifics. We pray for kings and those in authority. You see that in verse 2? We pray for the political people who have a who have a a say in how your atmosphere and environment is. I want to read something from Jeremiah chapter 29, a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the people going into captivity in Babylon. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions from this, so read the screen with me. Thus says the Lord, the the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, who sent God's people to Babylon from this passage. God did. This punishment you're getting, being uprooted from your home, taken to a foreign land, it's me. Don't blame the Babylonians. Don't get mad at them. Don't rebel against them. It's me doing this. Now I'm going to write you a letter, and this is a letter he wrote to him. I want you to build houses. I want you to live in them. Make your life there. I want you to get married. I want you to have children. I want your life to be like it's supposed to be right there. Next screen that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city. These are godless people who worship different gods. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord for this city of Babylon and its leaders 
for in its welfare you will find your welfare. When we are in a place we would rather it be different and people are a little bit less holy than we'd like them to be as governing leaders, Christians don't go on Facebook and belittle them and complain and gripe and grumble about our government leaders. That's not the verse. The verse is, you pray for them. Go ahead and talk about your worldly leaders and even complain about them, but you're complaining to God and you're praying to him. You're not bad talking and constantly undermining their authority. Listen, if you're one of those people who gripes and grumbles about this all the time, I have a verse that says you need to be praying rather than complaining. You need to be taking it to God rather than taking it to Facebook and your friends and all these. This, there's a verse for this because we are a group of people that decide the only way we're really going to do anything about anything is by putting it in God's hands and praying for him. And that's what, exactly what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You pray for them. If you believe the one God over all people and the one mediator who's got the one plan that makes people right, the first thing you're going to do is pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because you long for them to be saved. It leads to the second one, and that's that you live. The reason you pray to these governing leaders is they can make it a situation where you're, you live peaceful and quiet lives and live godly and dignified. Godly means I'm determined to please God. Next screen. I'm determined to please God, so I'm going to study him, and I'm going to worship him, and I'm going to gaze upon him, and I'm going to memorize him. I'm going to put him in my heart so that I can become like him. So your lives, if you are godly people who are thankful for what God's done for you, and you come and you worship him, and you want to live your life for him, your life is suddenly going to be more and more shaped in the image of God. That's called godly. But the word dignified means that you are respected in the eyes of the world. Do we care what the world thinks about us and our behavior? The answer is yes. The world needs to be impressed by us. We need to honor God primarily, but then we also want to make sure that we're making an impression on the world because we want them in here. Here's how Paul says it to Titus. In every way, in all your behavior, make sure the teaching about God our Savior is attractive. We live our lives pleasing God, wanting our lives to be attractive to the world that's watching. Something draws them. The way we live our lives and the way we're close to our family and the way we disciple one another and the way that we pray and we're respectful to authorities in our lives, even to the ones we don't particularly like, all that stuff becomes attractive to the world and they're drawn to us. So if we believe all these doctrines, we will pray, he says, and we will live godly, dignified lives because God wants the world bad and so should we. God wants those people who are out there to be in here, and he's commissioned us to help him with that task. So we look at the world, and we see them as future brothers and sisters that we long to enjoy the family reunion with us. We consider them pre-converted. I thought about different ways about how this made sense this week, and, and I can share this before Abby gets home for Christmas, and it's this way. I'm listening to Melissa and Abby talk all the time on the phone. They talk a lot. 
we start paying attention to all the boys' names that start coming through conversations. Y'all been here before? Y'all done this before? We start listening to these boys' names. Who are the boys' names that start coming up more and more? Who might this be? And uh, we, st- we're, we don't hear anything in particular right now necessarily, but we, we keep listening for it. We keep listening for it because that's, you know, she's going to meet somebody one of these days, and it's going to be one of those guys, and whoever that name comes up, that's who it's going to be. And so I'm, think- I'm, I'm sitting here thinking right now, what do I need to be doing right now to bless this young man who's going to come into our family? What am I doing right now for the one I long to be the partner of hers for life and be part of this family? What am I doing right now? Can anybody guess what me as the dad and the father-in-law is doing right now for my son-in-law I don't even know? Does anybody know what I'm doing? Yeah, you got it, right? So the idea is I want him to be a good guy, and I want him to enjoy our family and like us. But I also want him to know I expect him to be certain. So I'm praying that. I've been praying that stuff since before she was born. I'm praying for the one I want to be part of our family and be something that send forth into the future, right? Why, shouldn't we do the same for the people we want to be sitting in these pews? I don't want vacant pews here, do you? I'd like them all full. I like you, and I like sitting in front, knowing where you sit. But listen, I don't want Valley View to be just us. I want there to be more. I want there to be more people sitting in these places so that when you move or when you die, somebody takes your place. No offense, you'll go to heaven. But I'm just saying that we want people who, what are we showing? What are we doing to show people? We want rear ends in these pews. We need to be praying for them like I am my son-in-law. But there's a second thing too. I'm trying to live life right now in such a way that I will be a blessing to that young man when he comes into our family. And I'm telling Abby, don't you find somebody and start trying to act a certain way to draw him. No, 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 no. You be real. You be the person a good guy you're looking for would recognize and want when he meets him. Don't be doing that when he gets there and trying to pretty yourself up in all these moral ways you be that for real while you're waiting you get yourself prepared and that's the way we're doing as a church this week my question is are you willing to say you know what i i believe so much in that god that one god over all of us and i believe that one plan that he's got i'm willing to start praying better praying more for everybody and all the people i long to see in here And start to live in a way that woos them here. Are you going to pray that kind of prayer? Are you going to live that kind of life? If you are like the God that you worshipped right now this morning, you will. That's what Paul says. You will pray those prayers. You will live that life. And this morning... If you have any kind of inclination within you that says to you, I need to respond, this morning is a great time to do it. We'd be glad to receive you into this family. You name the name of Jesus from your lips and be immersed. If you've done that and for some reason, some reason you've lost that, 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 that sense of urgency about the person who hasn't received it, you need to take part in that. God's asking you to join him in this journey of saving the world. 
And this morning, if you need to pray about that with us, we'll do that. Whatever is your spiritual need, make it known as we stand and as we sing.